This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. High Theory Podcast is a proud member of the Humanities Podcast Network. It therefore gives us great pleasure to invite you to the 2022 Humanities Podcast Network Symposium on podcasting as knowledge sharing and creation. Like last year, we will have three days of conversations on all things podcast from October 20th to 22nd. Please visit the network website at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org to find more details and for the link to register for this free and virtual event. I'm here today with Professor Tang Wei Hu, who is going to talk to us about digital lethargy. Wei Wei, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? I'm Tang Wei Hu. I teach at the University of Michigan in the Department of English. I also teach creative writing there. Okay, great. So what the heck is digital lethargy? Well, digital lethargy is a feeling that the self has been worn away. It's been a self that's exhausted, a feeling that self is a burden. And it can look like a lot of different things, right? It can look like wanting to disassociate or put something off. It can look like being passive, but it can also be hyper restlessness, like when you're doom scrolling, can even be self-sabotaging. There's a character in a film I talked about, Sleeping Beauty, and there's a scene where she sets money on fire. Digital lethargy is a little bit different than other forms that we've seen over time. So unlike burnout, it's not tied to your work because instead the work within digital capitalism is the work of being yourself. It's the work of making choices, of expressing yourself, of even performing yourself for others. And finally, digital lethargy is a way of exploring service workers that work inside our digital economy who have only a partial claim on selfhood. Those are workers that have to perform being yourself for other people as a form of customer service, right? So if you're driving an Uber, you're supposed to be yourself in front of your clients. So it's a way of exploring what it's like to have only a partial claim on or access to selfhood. In your book that is coming out with MIT, you write a little bit about lethargy 
like a pre-digital lethargy, I guess, for lack of a better word. So could you tell us a little bit about what lethargy is disconnected from the digital? That's a really interesting word. The root is lethe, which is forgetting, right? So it's it was a kind of ailment that was seen as fatal and in ancient Greek medicine, an ailment that was seen as, as you're, you're slipping away from yourself. And the only way to call you back is to poke you and, and remind you of your name. And I think that the other half of the word as well, lethargos, right? Argos is is the is the word idle or not working. And so even though it's a it's a very old concept, it kind of gets turned into, if I'm remembering correctly, acedia, which then gets merged into the, the deadly sin of sloth by the Pope. I think that looking at what lethargic-like ailments and moving away from it as a medis- medical ailment and looking at more as a kind of pathology of society you can see it happen in all these different ways over time, whether that's the early modern period. But I do know that the 19th century a little bit better, and that's the moment when neurasthenia comes into the picture. Neurasthenia is diagnosed as a, a disease of the nerves, but I think this is back in the same theory that you know different bodies had different capacities for the modern day, and some people who are brain workers had more of an ability to handle the stresses of modern life. And also, they were the ones that were most afflicted by modern life. So they were the kind of manager class, and they were, you know, seen as particularly susceptible to neurasthenia. After that, there are all these interesting ailments that sort of diagnose a problem with work. Another one that I take up in the book that's a kind of um, subtext is vagrancy, right? And vagrancy is a set of codes that essentially penalize marginalized persons, uh, minorities, um, racialized persons for being who they are. It's a way of essentially controlling a class of laborers by forcing them to work in the case of Puerto Rico of, of having to carry a, a notebook on you at all times that proved that you were working and had worked in a responsible way. It's, it's kind of like a flexible law that's there to say you're idle, you're a vagrant. Here, it was certainly used in post-reconstruction in the Black Codes to uh, force newly emancipated persons back into Douglas Blackman and cause a slavery by another name. What I'm looking at in this book is the intersection of all these different ideas about idleness, about not doing things, about uh, whether this is pathologized. Certainly, in some cases, it's it's celebrated, right? In Rome, you have the idea of otium as this kind of noble gentleman's laziness as a period of time to reflect. Looking at these balances and, and who gets stigmatized by it is one of the things that hopefully... It, the book is not primarily historical. There's that word digital on it to appeal to tired white collar people these days. But I, I think there's a there's enough connections to historical periods. And can you perhaps give an example of what digital lethargy is now that we have this historic context? I think the easiest way of understanding digital lethargy is possibly just to think about a warehouse worker who is constantly not allowed to have bathroom breaks, not allowed to be idle. And, you know, the memoir that I talk about in this book, Season Associate, the violence of Amazon, right, is not so much that they're um, being whips and sort of cracking them on the factory floor. The memoir that I, I talk about, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that the exhaustion that she experiences as a warehouse worker, her job is to inventory books. She's a receiver, right, of, of things that sort of show up in inventory, to inventory all sorts of objects, is that it's so repetitive that she 
begins to forget how to count the days. She starts writing notes to herself because, you know, her own sense of selfhood is, is sort of slipping away from her. I think that that's the case in a lot of jobs that are, are part of this gig economy, right? Is that she has a temporary contract, her identity is not valued. She's there as a kind of interchangeable and disposable worker that will be replaced, you know, at the end of the season by the next temporary worker. And she has this interesting line about how her fellow workers are, are too exhausted to form any sort of collective action, that they are just sort of unable to unionize or they're unable to do other things. They would be unable to retrain. And I think that one of the, you know, we can look at that and we can say these workers are passive and, and they're sort of being oppressed. But I think there's there's something interesting about understanding that passivity as, an, as a political state, right? As a kind of condition of self that has been worn away, has been exhausted. And everybody's saying, like, why don't you rise up and act? Why don't you speak up for yourself? I mean, that's incredibly difficult to do, right? So I think that's how, for me, digital lethargy turns into a political condition of uh, how, how we can understand the politics of digital capitalism as not one which is, you know, oppressive, right? It's not about beating you in until you do something different, but it can be uh, oppressive simply because of its banality, uh, because it's, you know, what it asks of you to constantly perform being yourself is is in itself um, exhausting. So I'm sorry, that's a kind of a messy answer. I hope you'll like really edit that one down. I'm sorry it took me so long to, to come up with it. But How might we use digital lethargy? I think it helps us understand, first of all, what the internet looks like from the perspective of those who aren't usually seen as users or programmers or makers or doers, right? Which are typically the people that show up in the great histories of the internet. You know, this person in this cubicle invented this technology. This person created a website that allowed people to use it uh, in this way. Instead, it helps us look at uh, people who are usually seen as passive objects or robots, right? Uh, so you might have heard about micro workers or clean digital cleaners, people who essentially form the infrastructure of the digital without ever sort of being acknowledged as persons. And so I argue that this division between users and servers is itself a division that's undergirded by racial capitalism. So this is lethargy helps us understand how the internet works, right? By splitting people into seeming actors or doers and people who are acted upon. Second, I think it helps us turn away from a demand to be ourselves all the time as someone who uh, is Asian American and often accused of or indirectly framed as not ha as someone without a lot of individuality. Um, so, you know, we ha I had a lot of choices growing up, right? I could sort of be a little bit over the top and try to get people's attention and prove that like I was a person just like everyone else. And that was itself a kind of exhausting demand, right? I have interests too. I have interest in culture. I watch TV. I don't do just math and science. That's a kind of exhausting demand. And I think to turn away from that demand, um, be this high resolution individual, uh, and there I'm borrowing a phrase Maria Dean is something that I think can have the basis for collective action, right? When we stop thinking of ourselves as empowered individuals all the time, maybe we can start thinking about the kind of strange form that collectively works on the internet. So one of my chapters is titled Do Nothing Together because collective inaction is in some ways about collectivity and not just inaction. Finally, I think the third way of using it is to call into question uh, what we mean by use, right? Typically, 
call something useful politically because it's loud or dramatic or heroic, right? We, we tend to think about someone protesting because they're taking the streets. We, we tend to look at people who've hacked a server, uh, protest an occupation or a, or a company. But lethargy redirects our focus to quieter and more ordinary forms of survival within the digital economy, which were everywhere around us, done by microworkers, done in everyday life. They're just less spectacular and they go unreported. And so I think lethargy is an attempt to redirect our attention away from these spectacular moments of surveillance through drones or the next evil thing that Microsoft or Google is doing and towards um, how we survive within digital capitalism. Great segue into our final questions, which is how will digital lethargy save the world? It definitely won't save the world. And that, I think, is the depressing news that this book is, because I think this book is a little bit of a pessimistic book. It calls into question why we... And I say we in the sense of, you know, let's say a liberal minded person want to have a concept such as saving the world. Right. You know, as I point out, as so many other scholars before me have pointed out, things are largely the same, um, especially for racialized persons. Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings, talks about this, this feeling that you're told that everything is different, everything is changing, and yet things are still the same. And I think that before we can even talk about saving the world, we have to deal with the unchanging sameness, the feeling of stagnation and stuckness, and yes, even pessimism that people face, uh, that, that precarious workers face, that, you know, the traditionally marginalized face. And I think that the desire to save the world is is great, but that itself is a form of toxicity, right? I mean, the internet was offered to us as a way of saving the world. And I think the book is just trying to say, hold on a minute, uh, or uh, we do anything like this, what damage does saving the world have? Saving the world is is a way of, of moving on, of, of sort of getting past the salvific relationship to some sort of problem where we can sort of swoop in and, and fix the crisis. It's what breeds the, the plans to, I don't know, resurrect mastodons in California. Saving the world is a way of disavowing the world right? also, right? It's a way of saying, we don't want to deal with the unpleasantness of it, uh, of staying of the people who have to stay within it and who very rarely benefit from you know the world saving technologies and promises that are out there to quote Akil Mbembe uh, you know what is life like uh, I'm misquoting him rather what is life like for those for whom the world has already ended right and I think that's the shift in time that this book is trying to make great well thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about digital lethargy thanks should I say the whole name of the book so that yeah. Okay. It's uh, Digital Lethargy Dispatches from Age of Disconnection out from MIT Press. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. The High Theory in STEM series is orchestrated, recorded, and edited by Julia Irian Martins, Nathan Kim, Saronic Bosu, and Kim Adams. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Mm-hmm.